so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. This week we'll feature a panel with respected leaders in the pro-life movement. Well, even being pro-life is not something that we should just assume. We need to really think it through. Pro-choice activists have often said that pro-lifers are pro-life until they need their own abortion. And sadly, LifeWay just released a study last fall that showed that 70% of women getting abortions identify as Christian. Over 40% of them are regular church attenders, and over 20% of them go once a week. So we can't just assume that the people sitting in our pews are pro-life and we can't even assume our own pro-life views until we've honestly grappled with those views by interacting with real people so often we approach the issue in an abstract way when we really need to do the on the ground work with people who are facing these decisions and sometimes they're sitting in our own pews at the 2016 evangelicals for life conference Daniel Darling moderated a panel discussing how to shape a pro-life, whole-life Christian ethic. The panelists included John Stone Street, Trillia Newbell, Karen Swallow Pryor, Emily Colson, and Ron Sider. They discuss how being pro-life doesn't mean advocating for unborn life alone, but rather being a champion for life at all stages, regardless of race, age, and level of ability. We hope you enjoy this timely message. Welcome to our panel discussion tonight. Our uh, topic is Abundant Life, Shaping a Whole Life, Pro-Life Perspective, and I'm honored to have with me uh, several distinguished guests. John Stone Street, who is the president of the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, we have Ron Sider, who you've met uh, before. He gave a great address today, who is an influential author, speaker, and professor. We have Trillia Newbell, who is the director of community outreach for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the ERLC. And uh, Emily Colson, of course, is the daughter of Chuck Colson, is a widely known speaker and author, an author of the book Dancing with Max, and an advocate for children uh, with disabilities. And Karen Swallow Pryor is professor of English at Liberty University and research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. My name is Dan Darling. I'm vice president of communications at the ERLC. So I want to start off our, our discussion with a question for you, John. Uh, the people here at this conference and the people tomorrow at the March for Life care about the unborn and, you know, want to go home equipped to articulate a pro-life ethic. When we, when we think about, you know, 40 million children killed, our hearts are ache, they ache and they're stirred. Uh, we pray for the day when abortion will no longer uh, be legal. Uh, but being pro-life means more than just being against abortion. And so the topic of this panel is a whole life, pro-life perspective. What do we mean by this and why is it so important to have a broadly defined pro-life ethic? Yeah, I mean, I think theologically the reason we have to have a broadly pro-life in its fullest sense sort of ethic 
is, is that a, a basic theological tenet of a Christian worldview is that every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. And, and I think if we went from church to church to church and, and said, hey, everybody, fill in the blank. Humans are made, and everyone would say together, in the image of God. And then you say, well, what does that mean? And you probably hear a lot more crickets, right? I mean, right. Um, what, what do we mean that we're made in the image and likeness of God? I mean, the scripture unlocks this in a very profound way, and that idea has had an amazing impact on society. Uh, the atheist Luke Ferry, a University of Paris philosopher, wrote a book on the history of thought in which he said, without Christianity, uh, the, the, the world never gets its democratic inheritance. Mm-hmm. And why? Because Christianity offered this idea that humans are made in the image of God. In fact, Chuck Colson would say that that's the most important contribution that Christianity has made to culture other than communicating the gospel itself is that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. And just to kind of wrap this up, the other key point of this is we believe that the gospel does not begin with Genesis 3, that we're sinners. It begins with that idea, image of God, and that's what we're redeemed and restored to. So Christians should have a the the biggest, uh, brightest, largest, most alive vision of what it means to be human. Yes. Uh, In other words, Jesus didn't come to save us from our humanity. Mm -hmm. Jesus came to save us to our humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. To give it back to us in the full as God intended it. And that's why we have all those rewords in the New Testament. Renewal, restoration, reconciliation, to return, to renew to that God-created intent. What, what God intended when he created us in the garden. That's such a good word. Ron, it's, it's been almost 40 years since you wrote the classic book, uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, <clears throat> which has really helped shape uh, evangelical Christians' views on poverty. Why is it that sometimes, you know, evangelicals are, are very strong on the issue of pro-life when it comes to abortion, but, but sometimes struggle to see human dignity in the poor? You know, I wish I knew. <laughs> I, I, I really don't um, feel I've got an adequate uh, answer to that question. Uh, sometimes I think that um, in some ways we can take a stand against abortion and it really doesn't um, affect us much in terms of how we live. Uh, but if we really take seriously that God's on the side of the poor, it's going to affect how we spend our money. It's going to affect um, um, what kind of uh, things we encourage our politicians to do. And, and that will cost us uh, something. I think uh, I, I talked about racism being a pro-life issue. And I, I think something parallel is, is true there. I mean, there's a tragic white arrogance that's been a part of white European culture and part of American culture and to really deal seriously with um, racism as a pro-life issue is going to mean that white people are going to have to deal with what in fact is unconscious, often subtle, um, sometimes open um, racism. So I think part of it is that um, it's kind of easy to uh, say uh, we're opposed to abortion doesn't require us to do much, but issues of poverty and racism require us to really change. Trillia, uh, you've written pretty eloquently, I would say, on, on the issue of, of life and on the issue of race, uh, having written several books and, and widely regarded articles. You have a unique perspective on how you've both experienced the discussion of abortion, but also you know, the, the hurt of racism yeah. in your family and in your, in your self. How, how do those two things really... Uh, come together for you? Sure. Well, I didn't become a Christian until I was 22. Mm-hmm. And before I was a Christian, I was 
pro-choice. And I wasn't just a little bit pro-choice. I was dogmatically <laughs> pro-choice. And um, when God saved me, he redeemed my heart. He transformed me um, to the core, but he also changed my worldview. Everything that I believed before was now I, I had to reconcile with the scriptures. Okay, wait a minute. What does God's word say about this? And one of the things that um, growing up when I was all throughout my life, I had a heart for and a desire um, to see people united, but it was not under the gospel. It was just united. It was a, that people would get along. But once God transformed my heart, I saw that, no, this is a gospel issue. But one of the things that I experienced was racism. And when I experienced racism, people would, what would they do? They would strip me from that image of God. They would see me as less than human. And as God changed my heart in regards mm. to, as when he saved me, he changed the way that I viewed the unborn. Mm -hmm. If I would be stripped as my image bearing, how could I not see this life in the womb as an image bearing child? And so God transformed the way that I view it through scripture, Genesis 1, mm -hmm. that we have, we have created to reflect some aspect of him and that he has knitted a baby in our mother's womb. And this is real, but it wasn't. So that solidified it. But then when I got married a few years later, I had a miscarriage mm. wow. and that, that did it. I knew this is a life. Yeah. This is a life. So how it marries is this image of God, it is important that we understand this doctrine well, this theology well, because we cannot love all nations and tribes and tongues and not love the baby created in the image of God, all nations and tribes and tongues mm. that has the ability for life, who is born life in the womb. Yeah. That's such a powerful witness, and, and that, that's a really good transition to a question I want to ask you, Emily. You've been an you know, outspoken advocate for uh, children with disabilities, uh, writing you know, very personally about your own son, Max. And um, Trillia talks about uh, you know, being stripped of your dignity with racism, and Ron talks about being, you know, the poor being stripped of dignity. And sometimes children with disabilities are also... Yeah. It's, it's hard for us to see human dignity. So can you speak to shaping the conscience of the church mm. uh, around the, the dignity of children with special needs? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I have to tell you that um, as the mom of a son who's 25 with autism, being here is really exciting because I picture that march, yes, in the snow tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, I feel like all these voices are standing up for my son. So I am very grateful to be here. Uh, what I have seen happen uh, in our church is really pretty extraordinary. I think the church uh, has this great opportunity to live in such a way that a watching world knows what it is to value life, even if we never say another word. Our church, God has used Max to uh, transform the culture in our own church. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something that is so important. God places value in life. Our role as the church is to affirm that value. 
Max, uh, well, I just wish you could see him on a Sunday morning because he is leaping. He is so joyful in the back of our church. Yes, it gets messy. I heard Russell Moore talking about that a little bit, but it's extraordinary. He gave his life to Christ when he was 13 years old. He asked to be baptized. He really struggles with communication, but he asked to be baptized. My dad had the privilege of baptizing Max. Every time Max gets in the water, he reenacts his baptism. (laughs) It's really beautiful. I think what we need to remember is that God's goal for Max is not that he become more like other young men. God's goal for Max is that he become more like Jesus. Mm. Same goal. Same goal, right? Mm. Extraordinary gift. Karen, you're an English teacher uh, at the world's largest Christian university, Liberty yeah. University. Um, from your perspective, as you're talking and interacting and teaching with uh, this young generation, um, what are you finding in terms of, uh, of a pro-life ethic? Uh, there's people say that this generation perhaps is more pro-life. Uh, what are you finding in terms of their attitudes? And is it a more holistically pro-life ethic than maybe a previous generation? Absolutely. I'm, I'm in my uh, 17th year at Liberty University, and so I've seen a few generations of students come in, and I would say that the, the current generation is more pro-life than uh, those I've seen in the past, even at an evangelical university. Um, but, you know, I talk to my students about th- these things, and I ask them, and they really are more holistic. They want very much to be pro-life, but they want is one of them actually recently said to me to be, and they want the church to be pro all life. Mm. Um, it's not restricted just to abortion. Um, they, the, some of the things we talked about earlier today on a, on another panel about um, being holistic, being seeing every issue is connected. This is important to this generation. They want to see uh, the pro life philosophy and pro-life actions reflecting love and not just uh, judgment, and they utterly reject anything that they see as hypocritical. So if our pro-life philosophy is not holistic, if it doesn't connect the dots, if it doesn't connect the beginning of life issues with the end of life issues, uh, then it it doesn't um, meet the worldview of of this millennial generation. Ron, you've been prophetically leading Christians to be consistently pro-life for many years. Uh, Are we making progress on this uh, among evangelicals in terms of expanding our pro-life vision? I think there's no question about that. Uh, I think that um, this conference is an amazing uh, demonstration uh, of that. I think that the National Association of Evangelicals, which is the largest network of evangelicals in the country, illustrates it. you know, their official public policy document is for the health of the nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that document says that faithful evangelical civic engagement must have a biblically balanced agenda. And it goes on to uh, uh, a very strong conservative statement on sanctity of human life and on family. Uh, but the longest statement is on economic justice for the poor. And uh, there's a good statement on creation, care, and peacemaking. Um, and their recent statement that we must be concerned with life from womb to tomb, you know, that's um, a major kind of development. And in the public policy that they do, they're certainly working vigorously um, uh, in opposition to abortion, uh, but they've um, joined with Catholics and many others uh, in important um, 
coalitions to uh, protect tens of billions of dollars that are effective programs for poor people. One could go on. Uh, so I, I think that uh, there's no question, but that we're making progress on this. Emily, your, your father, many people know uh, who Chuck Colson was, counselor to President Nixon and, of course, founder of Prison Fellowship. And your father's views on these things were deeply rooted, you know, views on culture were deeply rooted in a Christian worldview. Uh, as we think about the, uh, the pro-life, whole-life ethic and our activism, how do you think your father's model of, of winsome but strong engagement could inform, say, a younger generation? Mm. Well, um, you know, the, uh, the day my dad had the stroke that actually eventually took his life, he was standing at the podium at a conference called Breaking the Spiral of Silence. He was speaking. So I, I think one of the most important things is that he really felt it was so important that we speak out. He would talk about speaking over the backyard fence and tell your neighbors, you know, you don't, we, we have this idea that we have to do this huge thing. And he'd say, talk over the backyard fence, tell somebody the good news of Jesus. He would call people to uh, work in their own sphere of influence, right? Because everybody already has that circle around them. And he had this wonderful way of saying, we don't, we propose, we don't impose. We propose because we have this great news to share, right? We don't have to impose our views. I think the, the thing that set my dad apart as well other than that brilliant mind, is he really lived it. He had credibility because his favorite place to be was walking through a prison and sharing the gospel with inmates. I remember the day he called me. It must have been early 90s when AIDS had just really come on the scene. We didn't know how it was spread. It was a lot of fear around this. And he called me and he said, Emily, I did something. I was on death row when I was asked to see one of the prisoners, and it was a woman with AIDS, and he agreed, and he said he led her to Christ, and at the end, he said he gave her a hug. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't know what that means for me. I don't know what that means for our family, mm. but he did it. He was obedient to Christ. I saw it in his relationship with my son, Max. You you have to lay your life down and you are around Max. And, oh, you get so much more back. I promise you. I promise you. But I saw that, how he built this beautiful friendship between them. They were, they were the most unlikely pair, the most perfect pair, because each had a gift the other needed. I think his life is also evidence that God can transform every life in the most radical, striking ways. Yes, he can. John, I want to ask you a question. Uh, uh, sometimes when we think of a pro-life, pro-life ethic or, or, or the concept of human dignity, uh, it, it, it's almost seen as a zero-sum game so that if, if you're pro-life, you can't also be you know, pro-immigrant uh, or if you're pro-immigrant, you can't. And sometimes different groups that are both seeking the image of God in uh, marginalized people groups are often sort of unnaturally pitted against each other. And so maybe speak to that issue and how uh, Chuck Colson's uh, model of engagement might inform that. Yeah. I, well, I, I think, again, you have to have that solid foundation of the image of God, and you've mm -hmm. got to actually, it's got to be more than a trivial you know, answer to a question. You've actually got to 
look through the scripture and figure out what is the image of God? How is that image, you know, communicated through the chapters of the Bible from creation, fall, redemption, and into restoration? And I think, uh, you know, for, for, for a lot of Christians, they never kind of walk all the way uh, th- th- through that. But, you know, there are going to be disagreements. And one of the things I think that complicates this is, is uh, in fact, Chuck used to quote uh, a quirky French theologian named Jacques Loul, uh who wrote a book called The Political Illusion. I mean, th- some of these issues have been, become primarily politicized. Earlier tonight, um, we heard David Platt say something about, you know, he used to think that abortion was a political issue instead of a moral issue. And I think a lot of us will, will, will look at all of these issues, and because we have certain allegiances, we immediately put ourselves in these categories. And, uh, and, and I think first and foremost, before we draw our political allegiances, we need to, again, go back to first things, which is the image of God, and let that uh, uh, unlock what, where we should stand on different issues. Uh, we also have to do it in community. Uh, one of the things that I think that, that, that the political illusion does is it means if someone's not politically with me, then they're all obviously against me. Uh, and the ability to actually have civil discourse. I, I really appreciate over the last two, three years what Oz Guinness has been talking about when it comes to civil discourse. We've lost a place to actually disagree and to disagree well. And uh, and I think that's something that, 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 that Christians should uh, model. They should champion the ability to disagree well because we're, again, for the same cause, which is the common good and, and the glory of Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. Karen, you've written uh, about <clears throat> Hannah Moore, who was a, an activist, along with William Wilberforce and others, to try to end the slave trade in Britain, part of the Clapham sect. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's interesting about those folks is they, they were not just against the slave trade, but there was other issues where they uh, were talking about human dignity. And so maybe talk about how their example really should inform our ethic as we think about a holistic pro-life vision. Sure, sure. And and, and secular historians have actually said of the Clapham sect that it is the smallest group of people that resulted in the largest amount of change in history. Mm -hmm. Um, And they really did what John was just talking about. Um, they, They interconnected a range of issues that were facing their culture um, in the late 18th, early 19th century. Slavery was chief among them, uh, but there, the, the children were, st- were working uh, in, in unsafe conditions. Women were working in, in unsafe conditions. Uh, animals were being treated cruelly. And they addressed all of these issues uh, based on their evangelical beliefs. And the other thing that they did is they did not work just with one another. Um, they were in the terms of Chuck Colson, co-belligerents, mm-hmm. uh, working together with w- taking up common cause with people who may have a- opposed them in other areas in order to achieve uh, a- achieve the common good. And I think there's much that we can learn today within the pro-life movement, within the church, about working with others to achieve uh, goals for the common good. Mm-hmm. Shirley, you, you recently edited a book uh, for ERLC called Women on Life, which... Yes. Uh, short commercial here is available for free if you go to evangelicals.life slash gift. There's a free download for everyone where you gathered uh, women uh, with a variety of perspectives, but all pro-life. Yeah. And uh, talk about how the whole life pro-life uh, idea kind of shaped what you're trying to, to do with that book. Sure. Um, I think sometimes we can focus on the unborn and stop there. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to do is gather a group of women who could address anything from sexuality to um, disability, which is important, 
to elderly care, widows. Um, we have a single mother who's now married, but she was single mother at one time who chose to keep her baby. And so um, all of these different topics, all the varying topics are important to a holistic pro-life, not only just viewpoint, but putting our faith into action. And so all of these women are either living it out in various ways or they're in this pro-life movement and they are, um, they are leaders in the movement. So I'm really thankful for women on life and those contributors. And I'm praying that it can help encourage and equip the church um, just to continue to take up this topic, but also to look at it and put our faith into action and to care. We want to lovingly care for women who are in these situations and men, right? But for this particular book, we are addressing women. And so we talk about different ways that we can care for them um, practically in the church and also with the gospel, mm-hmm. sharing the gospel and the grace and love that comes through loving our neighbor as ourselves. Yeah. Karen, you've recently written about uh, the idea of thoughtfulness as we're uh, engaging in the public square on these issues, particularly the pro-life issue. Why is it so important for Christians to be thoughtful and to, to shape imaginations on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think we all know that even our own faith is not something that we should just take for granted. As, as evangelicals, one of our distinguishing features is that we believe in individual personal salvation and having that experience, an authentic conversion experience. Well, even being pro-life is not something that we should just assume. We need to really think it through. Uh, I mean, pro-choice activists have often said that pro-lifers are pro-life until they need their own abortion. Um, and sadly... You know, LifeWay just released a study last fall that showed that 70% of women getting abortions identify as Christian. Over 40% of them are regular church attenders, and over 20% of them go once a week. So we can't just assume that the people sitting in our pews are pro-life, and we can't even assume our own pro-life views until we've honestly grappled with those views by interacting with real people, facing those situations. Um, we use our imaginations to um, to display and to uh, to enact compassion on those situations. It's, it's not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's real. But so often we approach the issue in an abstract way when we really need to um, do the do the on-the-ground work with people who are facing these decisions. And sometimes they're sitting in our own pews. Yeah. John, I have a question for you, uh, just kind of piggybacking on what Karen said about shaping imaginations. Sometimes it can be frustrating for those of us in the movement uh, the pro-life movement, we don't see people's minds change fast enough. And talk uh, about the long game, about the importance of being patient and sort of just continually teaching that worldview and, uh, you know, waiting for the Lord to work on people's hearts and minds. Well, I'm, I'm so glad this question is coming up because I, I think it's very important that we remember, specifically on the life issue, the goal is not that that, that abortion becomes illegal. The, the goal is that abortion becomes unthinkable. Mm-hmm. It's that, that it's not an option for a civilized society. And, and that's different because that has to do with the imagination. And we have to remember in the long game that the imagination is upstream from politics, right? We might, you know, Chuck used to say the culture. And what we mean by that is the cultural imagination, the world we think we inhabit, where things are acceptable or not acceptable. That's what we, really we need to do work on. Mm-hmm. Now, I also want to say this, though, theologically, and, and this is one of the things that drew me to the work and writing of Chuck Colson so early. And, and then when I had the privilege of working with him uh, the last couple of years uh, of, of his life is, is that he was committed to the long game, uh, 
because he believed deeply that despair is a sin. Mm-hmm. In other words, looking at culture and thinking all is lost is starting with the wrong premise. The right premise is Jesus Christ saying it is finished. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's good. And so no matter what happens in culture, uh, the, the, the center of history, the center of our cultural moment, uh, the, the truth about our cultural moment is that Christ is risen from the dead. Yes. And we have yeah. to keep that in mind if we're going to keep the long game in yeah. mind. And if we're going to, uh, so we have to have that kind of motif of hope. And we also have to have that vision of the cultural imagination. And then we start realizing that, you know what? When someone like my heroes, the pregnancy care center workers, meets a woman at her point of need and talks her, uh, out of that, that bad choice and then creates, I think Kelly Rosati said this earlier, creates the love of her life with this new child. Mm. She's changed not only that person's decision, but she's changed that life and then lives all around it. That's the imagination that's, that's taken place. So why, what are we seeing? We're seeing abortion legislation, uh, you know, go the right direction, at least on the state level. Now, remarkably over the last couple of years, we see the number of abortions going down. The, the imagination on the life issue, as I look at the big picture, I see so many issues that don't seem to be going the right direction. We have tons of momentum on the life issue, tons of momentum on the life issue. And so I think we can be excited about the long game, specifically when it comes to uh, the beginning of life, life issues. A couple more questions. I do want to uh, ask um, Ron a question. Uh, we're, we're here because we believe in the sanctity of human life and we want to see the end of legal abortion. But as Christians, we should want to see the end of uh, human suffering and injustice everywhere. And so I think sometimes we get trapped into thinking, well, if, if one assault on human dignity ends, then our work is finished. But it seems to me that every generation will have some assault somewhere on human dignity and Christians who need to stand up for the vulnerable. And so what actions do you think churches need to be taking, both in their communities and fostering that sort of uh, culture of life? Well, I think the first thing is for our pastors and other church leaders to nurture the kind of worldview and biblical uh, holistic vision that uh, we've been talking about. Uh, and that's absolutely crucial. And David Platt, you know, talked about, in fact, how we did that and mm-hmm. his congregation. Uh, but I think, secondly, uh, there are a whole variety of ways that local congregations can uh, uh, provide opportunities for their people to get deeply involved uh, in areas in the community. Now, I could talk about any number of things, but let me just illustrate it with, with two. John Perkins, for um, five decades, uh, has been a leader in encouraging more and more uh, uh, ministries in very poor communities where they combine evangelism and health care and uh, improving education and housing and so on. And there's now... Um, a whole network, the Christian Community Development uh, Association, of more than 800 congregations. Some of those have $50 million a year budgets, and they're transforming whole neighborhoods, but also leading people to Christ. Um, any congregation could uh, decide to go to that annual conference and decide that uh, it would begin to start that kind of program. Uh, second thing would be to say, uh, for, for a white congregation, uh, to say, um, we're sorry we were not there when Dr. King was marching um, and leading the crusade for civil rights against uh, racism. But now we get it, uh, and we want to partner with an African-American congregation. And we're going to sit down and we're listen. We're going to have an extended multi-year um, conversation, and we're going to 
finally ask how we can work together um, and partner to overcome racism. Those would be just two concrete kinds of things that I think local congregations could do. Emily, you brought an object lesson, so I'm going to give you a chance to kind of explain that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. You know, since it's late at night, it's good to have a little visual reminder. I'm a really visual person. I spent most of my life as an artist. And so, you know, when we're talking about the dignity of human life, it's really un uh, important to understand how this impacts us in our lives. And I'm so thankful for all of you who have hung on this far, especially with this giant snowstorm coming out. <laughs> I, I brought this little silver cup with me. If you could see it up close, you would see that it is very dented and it's tarnished and it's scratched. The inside is all scratched up. I don't know if that happened when it was made or if it had happened from use. If you saw this little silver cup in an antique shop, I am pretty sure you would pass it by. If they put a price tag on this, it really wouldn't get very much at all. But this cup is precious because on the bottom, there is a tiny little mark. That's the mark of my great-grandfather. Mm. My father's father was a silversmith. This cup is precious because it bears the mark of its creator. Every life is precious because every life is made in the image of God. Amen. Our value does not come from what we can or cannot do. Our value comes because we are his. Yes. Amen. Amen. And, and on that note, we're, we're going to end. Would you give a, a hand for our panel? And, uh, I'm going to ask John if you would, would you close us out tonight and uh, send us on our way? You bet. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for today. You've gathered a lot of uh, very uh, gifted, uh, wise, uh, thoughtful leaders here uh, to, to challenge us and to lead us. Uh, you, you've, uh, you've built this movement uh, with your people over the last several decades to respond to a grave evil. And yet we want to we, we want to be faithful to that calling and, and yet want to be as as, as as right on as we can and not miss other evils, uh, even as we lock in on this one this weekend. Thank you for the, uh, the, the gift it is just to be together. Uh, thank you that we are one. We have unity uh, in the, the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done to accomplish redemption. Father, we look forward to the day that he returns. Uh, until that happens, make us faithful. Make us faithful this evening in the little things. Make us faithful tomorrow yes. as we gather together and, uh, and march and, and, uh, and break the spiral of silence as you've called us to do in our own little ways, in our own communities. And Father, I ask that you would challenge each and every one of us in our own neighborhoods. It may even be easier for some of us to march with a big group than it is to talk to our friends and neighbors in our own backyard. Don't let us get away with that, Father. Yeah. Convict us. Uh, use your church to accomplish your, 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 your purposes. And ultimately, uh, we look forward uh, when the kingdom that is already here becomes uh, fully realized uh, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe for the most up-to-date episodes. For more information on human dignity, visit ERLC.com.